Welcome to episode 5 of the Bruise of Paradise. I'm Tony, aka Tony Scaponi. I'm joined today by Benedict, aka Kilby, and Matt, aka Punishing Waterfalls. If you enjoyed today's show and want more, you can check out all of our links in the description. Jumping into our main topic of the day, we just recorded some pre-show, so if you want to check that out, go right over to the Patreon link below. When to jam. So, for me, when to jam, knowing when to jam, starts with how we build our deck in the first place. You can't really answer that question until you know when, on average, your deck is trying to jam, and then, of course, you can move on to depending on what you're playing against and all that other good stuff. So, just as an example, right, the Epic Gamble. So, the Epic Gamble is looking to jam immediately. However, as you start playing matches out, you don't only mulligan two hands that jam immediately because you got to understand that all, not all matchups are just a goldfish on the other side of the table um plenty of decks are looking to drag the game out and are very good at dragging the game out a card like force of will oftentimes is going to do that so even with a deck like the epic gamble which is essentially belcher or if you're just playing belcher i might look at a hand that has multiple land drops might not even be doing anything. It might be tap land pass or ancient tomb pass. But I think to myself, well, about half of the format, this hand is going to be fine against. So I won't be jamming on, on turn one, right? And then it really just depends how what you're playing against and how the, the match unfolds. I think tempo with especially storm decks and combo decks, it's um, it, it takes a lot of repetition to know when it's appropriate to go for it. I think probably the most useful question to answer this question as to whether you sh or when you should jam is, is it getting better if I pass? Is even, I'll be in scenarios where I'm maybe 5% to win. But if passing means I'm even lower percent to win, then I'm just going to jam, right? I mean, an obvious example for a fast deck is, say, on turn one, say you have it, right? You have a kill, or at least a high percentage chance to kill. Um, in the blind, 
you got to know the format, of course, if it's outside of Legacy. But really, I think, Benedict, you had said 50% is blue with Force of Will. I think it's lower than that. It, it's, it's 40%, it's 40 uh, not counting Force Negations, like being additional copies. Right. I mean, it depends on, on how many blue decks, uh, you know, that's going to fluctuate depending on what the meta looks like. But generally speaking, if you have a, a, a turn one or a potential for a turn one in the blind on game one, we're going for it, right? Because even those decks that are playing Force of Well, even Force of Negation, uh, you know, is only a certain percentage, which is, you know, fairly high. But then in addition to that, they have to actually have it in their opener. It's not like anyone playing Delver is just simply mulliganing to Force of Well. Um, and that's coming from someone who is known for playing combo. Like, I'm still going to do that. That fact is going to change that calculation slightly for me, depending on what the hand looks like. Um, but still, generally speaking, if I have a game one in the blind, I'm I'm going to go for it. Um, like uh, I just uh, told in the pre-show, I'm not uh, using my statistics background too often. But in that case, it's just you said it, it's somewhere between 40 and like 55% of decks play Force of Will, depending on the meta. And then they have to draw it or have it in, have it in hand. So you are left with maybe 25 to 30 percent chance they have it, and that's uh, to win the game. I'd always take that. But if you go further, and your combo might whiff, like maybe you're playing an, an echo deck or stuff like that, you also have to take that into consideration. But uh, also, like you said, it, um, you need reps to make that call because you you cannot calculate it it's too difficult to calculate against an unknown opponent um how your deck uh, plays out uh, past your echo or past your first move yeah i mean you got to keep in mind if you jam and you fail or you get countered or whatever most of the time I mean, sure, if you jam and it requires LED and you used all your rituals and you literally have zero permanent, zero cards in hand, probably going to lose. <laughs> but a lot of the times, um, that's not necessarily the case. You know, it's not just about that first play because when you, if your opponent is stopping it, it, it has a cost to them, right? Force of Will has a cost. They're using two cards and they're losing a life. Um, but they might be, they might have to pitch a card that, they need um if they're dazing they have to pick up a land it's one of the ways that i have found success in being able to play these decks that draw a bunch of cards despite there being bowmasters everywhere there are ways to mitigate uh the effect that bowmasters has and one of those ways is by jamming and making them pick up a land and delaying their bowmasters especially if you have something to jam the next turn, no big deal, didn't work, we're going to go next turn. And I think one of the one of the strengths of these faster decks, um, not to harp too much on, on these faster decks, obviously that's what I, I play mostly, but one of, the, one of the strengths is not necessarily having it all the time, but just the threat of being able to have it, right? It gets in some players' heads where they think you always have it, um, and then even someone who is a very good player, they still have to consider, well, what if they have it? So it, it works to our advantage. It does make, make people mulligan more often than maybe they'd like to uh, make plays that are, are different as a result that maybe aren't perfect for their, their own advancement in the game state. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the deck that I play 
I would say the deck that is mostly a turn one deck that I would play, which isn't many, is like Oops All Spells. You know, like I cut my teeth on that and I was like one of the probably like highest one percent players with Oops All Spells. I was able to top eight a mock, you know, whatever that showcase and then uh, top eight the, the actual showcase challenge with Oops, you know, which many people consider like a, a meme deck and not really a competitive one. But the more you played that deck and like you learn the spots and learn exactly what you're doing, um, but that's a deck where it's like, my goal, especially game one, is just to mull to a turn one, right? That's like your game one. Like, like, like this is what this is my goal. Like, uh, if I have a pack negation, awesome. But if not, my goal is to put it out. And your really only decision is, hey, do I have a turn one and then a turn two? Do I have to use Summoner's Pact? Where, like, this is essentially an all-in, you know? Because, <laughs> like, if it gets countered, I lose. Um, so you really get the, those types of decisions. And then it's more the post-board can almost change uh, your strategy entirely, even though you had this turn one deck. If I'm now sideboarding in Xantid Swarms, you know, I'm, a, I'm almost explicitly saying I want to go off on turn two now. You know, like, I want to play Xantid turn one and then try to win turn two. Um, or uh, post-board, if I know what you're playing, and even though I'm oops all spells, like, if I say, this hand is, uh, this hand's rock solid, like, maybe I keep a hand with no, none of my eight win cons, but I have, like, you know, the mana and double pack negation. You know, and it's like, is this worth it? I'm all the six. And, you know, you start evaluating those types of things where, like, you know what, you, this deck doesn't pre- present a fast clock. You know, there's no need for me to uh, try to jam right now. Whereas if I'm saying I'm facing Tony and I know that he wants to go off on his turn one or turn two, then like, you know, if he has the force, he has the force and that is what it is. So um, very, it becomes like a very interesting, <laughs> and then postboard, you also, when you're in these mirrors, you get this dance of, well, they mold, do they mold the force wall or do they mold to their own turn one? You know, like what are, like what are, what are we, it becomes like a little mind game of like, all right. If I keep seven, are they going to mull to force a wall now? Like, are they going to mull a bad hand thinking that I'm going to try to go turn one and I actually can go turn two? And it does become, like, a, a, a very interesting mind game, though. Especially when you get to those those turn one, turn two mirrors. It's a level system. Yeah, and it, it's hard to say who's actually right, right? It, it becomes not, like, uh, who's a better player, but it's like, can I get them to think this is one time? Or, like, what are they thinking? And it's like, do you level yourself? Or do you, like, guess wrong, but it still works out? <laughs> like, it becomes, like, a, it definitely becomes, like, very strange because it's like and it also become like you're trying to level them but they just have the nuts and it's like all right all this is for nothing you know they have force of will in their own turn one so and you're, you'll be thinking about it for like you know a minute or two on your moto clock like all right what can i do and but uh you know especially for those turn one decks like i feel like the majority of the time spent should be whether or not you're keeping your hand like, like that's like to me the most important decision you'll make as opposed to like would you start going off with like for you with your uh you know the jewels and, and the copying them and go or, like from there it becomes like you said like you know the lsv's mind of just like hey it's just memorizing it making sure i have enough mana to do everything i want to do with my transmute artifacts and, and doing all that and then uh, but like keeping this keeping your seven or knowing like being disciplined with your mulligans is just so important yeah for most combo decks it's not hard once your pieces are deployed but before uh, you you have to work, or you have to think how to get them in play, not how to to win past that. Um, I have a quest- question for you too, and also for the audience. Um, would you rather go off turn one against an unknown opponent, or would you uh, play defense grid or thoughtsies against an unknown opponent and give them their first turn? If I if I have grid, I'm playing grid on. Like if, if I have ancient term grid or the option to go turn one. Like, grids are in the deck for a reason. Like, I shouldn't be playing grid if I'm planning on actively playing it turn one. Like, are the same thing for, like, a Thoughtseize, and it's it's just, like, uh, I'm, I'm Thoughtseizing, I think, just always. Like, otherwise, it's is, why is it in there? You know what I mean? Uh, that, that's just, that, that's, that's me. Like, uh, yeah. 
For me, it depends. Depends on the hand. If I mean, if you're telling, if it's like literally a turn one peer, uh, I'm probably going for it instead of deploying defense grid, um, because there's a lot of things that can occur if you pass the turn. You can play defense grid and pass, and you can die. You can be met with chalice on zero. You can be met with trinosphere. You can be met with discard from the opponent. Um, you can be met with just the wasteland that. Now your Ancient Tomb is gone. If you have multiple lands that, you know, might make me more apt to, you know, deploy the defense grid, it really depends on the context of the hand. Um, but also it, it depends on, on what you're doing, you know, if it's just an echo. Because oftentimes you get that, you're in that scenario with, with, with these LED echo decks where, okay, I can LED echo with three or four mana post echo, or I can deploy defense grid and have you know only one or two or no mana post echo in which case if i can do both then then i'm going to do that especially you play with galvanic relay sometimes you wind up in spots where you're like i can relay into echo or i can just echo and sometimes if you split yourself you you, you don't get either really right you you put mana into the relay which wasn't really a great relay anyways and then you neutered your echo and have to pass the turn and then you die <laughs> it's like if i just you know done the echo we would we would have been good i mean that, that's the scenario i had in hand in in mind um you have ancient tomb lotus um, led um echo of eons and defense grid and now the question is do you play defense grid and not play led and then maybe get sword seized and you are fucked can I say that on Spotify? Yeah, I can. Nothing for work. Yeah, you can. Uh, I would prefer not. I think it'll be you know, yeah, more the, of an the, audience the if we try is, not to. But <laughs> um, you you can uh, cast a defense script, maybe deploy it, and then or maybe stick it, and then you can echo that turn, or you can uh, stick defense grid and cast LED, and then wait for the next turn, and then echo. But you might get prismatic ending or something else on your blind side diamond. So it's it's really tough to make the right call on that, uh, and it's easiest against an unknown opponent. And you always should think about what would you do against an unknown opponent because it's the basic decision. And from that you can add other factors like my opponent is playing this or that, and he's known for whatever. He's a good player, bad player, whatever. So in that circumstance, I would play grid just because there is enough blue and I'm still doing something afterwards. It may very well still just uh, win. There's really nothing more powerful than on the turn? protected turn one. Elliot, okay. Yeah, I would grid and then I would actually cast my, my echo in that circumstance. Uh, in the event that I were passing, I almost always play out zero drops there's really not that much prismatic ending right now a lot of the yeah, decks that would that. typically play prismatic ending mm -hmm. are playing um leyline binding mm -hmm. instead if they are playing pending they're playing a smaller number of them and there's a lot more discard and chalice so i play things out a lot more often i agree with the playing things out yeah there was a time when prismatic ending was just in every you know, <laughs> like almost every deck. So since that's gone, there really is not many you know, ways to get punished. It's a great example of how to approach these type of situations because like half a year ago, I would have probably waited because there was almost no chalice 
and I would have kept uh, LED in hand because there was a lot of prismatic ending. And I mean, Thoughtseize is always uh, a thing, but it's not. It wasn't as bad as it's now. Now let's say nine nine months ago, before the the Bowmaster hit. Yeah, I don't even know if it's like Thoughtseize more than like honestly, it's it's more about I think like grief than anything else. Yeah. Like grief is just like Ugh. yeah, grief reanimate is like the the bane of the format right now like imo like i'm sure i'm not the only one with that opinion but it certainly um <laughs> makes things pretty difficult for for a lot of decks to uh to function when uh, there's no clean answer right it's just there's there's just no good way like aside from like leyland of sanctity you know what i mean like when you're on the draw to not get double scammed uh, and most of them run days also right so you're like <laughs> you get your two best cards taken they have a threat and then they're ready to daze you so it gets tough yeah, it certainly can be. So for me, power level always has a direct correlation with a curved willingness to tolerate risk. I'm going to say that one more time and then I'm going to dig into it a little bit. Power level has a direct correlation with a curved willingness to tolerate risk. So in other words, it's not a straight line for me. It's not, you know, the more powerful the hand is, just straight up, the more willing I am to tolerate risk. There is a certain um, certain amount of risk associated or a certain power level where I'm just making that decision as a solid yes or no. Um, but generally speaking, I'm just I'm, I'm willing to to risk more the more powerful my hand is. If it's a straight up uh, turn one that is deterministic, um, well, I'm willing to take a lot more risk with it. Um, but as we get into the mid-game or even past turn one, uh, these calculations start to change, right? You want to start looking for things like, is the opponent missing land drops, right? If you're playing against a blue deck, they have eight cards in hand, they didn't make a land drop, they went to discard, you could be playing a deck like Belcher, and if you have land drops, I know Belcher only plays so many, they play the tap lands, but let's say you have some in hand, there's, I don't want to say no, but there's very little reason to go for it, even if you have it. Even if you have it uh, protected, especially because, let's say you're playing against the blue opponent and they're missing land drops, especially post-board when they know what you're on, what does that mean? That means their whole hand is spells. What spells do you think a blue deck is sitting on when they don't have any land drops against a fast combo deck, right? They probably got a bunch of force wills or a bunch of interaction. And one way to beat that is in this spot where you can just make land drops. You basically get free advantage. Now, these days, there's a lot more that used to be a lot more true. This universally. However, these days... You know, fair decks, not just blue, but everyone tends to be packing a lot more permanent hate. Um, so there, there is a lot more urgency these days to just go. But if you think, okay, I need just, I need one more mana and then I can have double protected and a kill. If it means passing one turn while my opponent is missing land drops, I'm willing to take that risk that they may draw their null rod and deploy it that is a one of or you know whatever um because of just how much i i get i'm guaranteed an entire layer of protection just for waiting one turn that to me is a risk that that is worth it yeah i mean then you definitely just run the numbers right it's super easy you could say like it also depends on the number of mana sources left in your deck 
Right, like, like you know, you just come to that risk, and you, like, say it's open desolate, or you assume the worst, like, your opponent has four null rods, they definitely don't have one in hand, otherwise they would have played it. You know, what are, they, what are they, have 45 cards left in their deck, they're, like, 10% to draw it, you know, versus my mana sources, half my deck's mana sources, I'm 50% to draw my mana, right? So, it's, uh, you know, it, like, the math there is, like, pretty clean, and, and, and this sort of ties into another point where it's, like, mathematically, like, that should be your decision, right? Like, that's what you should do. And if it doesn't work out, if they happen to top deck the the ten percenter in that one turn, then it's not necessarily you made the wrong decision. It's just bad beats variance. That's why we play magic, right? Yeah, I mean, there, there's other considerations too. You know, do they have pressure on board? I will often, when playing against Delver, say they have a Darcy on board, Dragon's Rage Channeler, and it's a one-one. It's not yet delirious. They want you to cast spells, right? You're most of the time expecting some sort of interaction that you need to plow through. However, in the event that you start casting things when you don't necessarily need to, let's say, and coming back to this, if you have land drops to make, it's generally speaking okay to, if they're not casting things, right? If they're casting cantrips, that's a different story. But if they literally pass the turn, even if they play a land, if they don't cast any spells, they have Darcy, they have one or zero cards in their graveyard like taking one damage is not a big deal but if you start casting spells they start getting not only delirium but they get to start fixing their draws it's it's what they want you to do now oftentimes we don't have a choice but there are enough spots where um it seems like i'm doing nothing but really i'm just taking draw steps and losing one point of damage in a spot that I think it's worth it to do so. There it's a huge difference whether the opponent plays uh, Grixis Delver or uh, like Rock Delver or Classic Delver, uh, Red Blue. Uh, because if they play Grixis Delver, they might have Bowmasters and if they, or Thoughtseize, and if they don't, they just don't have that uh, threat that might disrupt you so much that they can finish you. If they are just deploying like uh, DRC, or that's how it was last year, you can literally wait until you're almost dead, and then you go in one turn, and they have to counter like three things, and uh, that makes it a lot easier. But in today's matter, you need well, you need stuff like uh, Wandering in uh, Tony's uh, recent lists that protect you from from these. Uh, I wouldn't say a game ending cards like Bowmaster, but these problematic cards like, again, Bowmaster. Yeah, permanent hate and a clock. Pretty good card. <laughs> but if you, let's say you don't know what you're playing against, you can't wait too long, right? You can wait, all of a sudden you get Doomsday and you're like, oh, I guess I'm dead. You know, I there's mean, a... Back in the day, TRC was an indicator for Delva and you could wait as long as, we, as you wanted to. Oh yeah, there, DRC. There, there was nothing. <laughs> there, there was no other deck playing DRC than than Delva, and Delva did not have a, a clock against you besides damage. But again, it comes back to the does it get better if I pass, right? And this is of course still in the lens of a a faster, more aggressive combo deck. But you also got to think about wasteland, right? Okay, I can pass. I don't. Uh, I want more protection. I want this. I want that. Whatever you're looking to draw. But if you get wastelanded. And you're not making land drops. If Wasteland is going to be that bad for you, oftentimes it's time to start jamming stuff. Okay, so we jammed. It didn't work. Now what? So it's okay to miss, right? Just because 
you did something and it didn't work doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't be doing that in the future. If you make a calculated decision that has a roughly certain percentage of having success, let's say as high as 75% even, that still means that 25% of the time it's not going to work out. So just be careful with this results-oriented thinking. Um, we want to be, it's the same thing in poker, we want to be um, accurately predicting outcomes, making our decisions based on those approximations, and then the results really don't matter, except to the extent that it'll drive our further decisions within that scenario. But it's important to be able to reflect accurately on what has occurred. Otherwise, we won't be able to make good decisions moving forward. Yeah, that's especially true for, for combo players. Like, um, if you're not a combo player and you make a decision, um, it affects the game or, or the, the accumulation of decisions decide whether you win or lose a game. And as combo player, you have so many big decisions to make. And uh, more often than not, they have a decent percentage to fail. And you have to be confident enough to judge, I still made the right decision. That play was good. I will do it exactly the same way the next 10 times. And if it fails 10 times, it was still the right play. And sometimes uh, this can get into your head, especially in. Uh, in tournaments, uh, if you practiced a little bit and then you made the same decision like four times in a row, it failed four times, and you still have to make the call. It was the right decision just by the numbers. And uh, gamble is probably the the best card uh, or the best example for this uh, this way. Like you have uh, five cards in hand, and you and one of them is gamble, and you have an eighty percent chance chance of keeping the card you gamble for. Will you do it or not? And it's easily possible to lose three times in a row. And if you're salty about it, maybe it's better to uh, be playing uh, not so volatile decks. Huh. Yeah, I, I remember just facing uh, back when Madness was a thing. And that, that's what I lost in that showcase. Uh, I was like 7-0 in the eighth round of Earth's Madness. And I lose to them like in three games. And I face them again in the top eight. And like, all right, I lost a die roll even though it's higher seed, right? Obviously, Moto. And then um, they go, I, I keep a turn one hand, and they burning inquiry me, make me discard my, my, my win. Like, I, I had one win con, I draw, like, another win con, discard both win cons, and I just don't draw any win cons for, like, four turns and die. And it's like, that's why I don't play that deck, because I know burning inquiry would do the same to me, and I just had it on the, on the opposite side, and it just, like, I remember, like, and again, it's like, when you make no wrong decisions, you just get tilted out of your mind. But, Ma uh, madness when you're 7-0. and oh. Madness in the top 8. What, what year is it? Yeah, it was, when was that? That'd be, be like a year or two ago, right? When like Angie's Ravenger, I guess you know, was, was yeah. printed, and people were like crazy with it, and uh, yeah, so that was um, <laughs> that was a kick in the teeth. Um, I, I think it's also important to understand when uh, either when there's no way to know, so you have two three lines, but there actually isn't enough data to definitively uh, make a correct answer or make a correct play. Um, and you just got to make a decision. Yeah, I think you rely on, uh, uh, like, that's where experience comes in. I think you just have to rely on intuition, you know, and hope things go your way. Like, it's like calling heads or tails. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I got a feeling it's going to be tails today. 
<laughs> and uh like like you know it's like the same thing if you're playing around a certain hate card and it's like well i can't be this i can't be this i have no data on this like it's just like it could be something like i remember this person playing this hate card versus me or i remember this archetype one time sided this in or you know like it's just like little stuff like that but you can't feel bad when when, when something like that doesn't work out as terrible as it yeah as bad as it feels no but I, uh, what i'm saying is sometimes there's no way to actually know Oh no! It's just no. There's there's slipping a coin and just hoping that you know you your your you know Long Island psychic ability works and you can uh, pick the right one. Right. And I sometimes, think- honestly, one of the worst things, one of the feelings I've had is being in those situations and then letting it bother me that I made the wrong choice. You know what I mean? And it's just like, was there? Any, and I just try to look back. Like, was there any way I should have known that they would have like you know whatever this card is that I wasn't playing around? Like, and like. It just sort of like should I play her in mind break trap from like you know Delver like they had one card left like what are the odds and it just sort of like like you know it, it could bother you like was there was there a way I should have known you know even though probably like you said practically there's really no no way of. I think uh, the best way to approach that is in your head pick one or maybe you also can pick uh, three or four cards to play around and then specifically pick cards yet that you want to beat you like you can say let's say mind break trap and if he has mind break trap uh, you specifically did not choose to play around it so it's more important to choose the cards you are not playing around than the cards you're actually playing around yeah if, for, if, just for your mindset if beating mind break trap means playing into days then it's like you know and the odds of them having mind break trap are incredibly incredibly slim then it, we're we're playing around days and we're just okay with losing to mind break trap that sort of thing sometimes it's even uh, cards you know they have like Nalrod, and you know they just have one so i'm not i'm not playing around Nalrod and then getting dazed or getting force of will or something like that it's unless you're on moto then they're playing four yeah <laughs> <laughs> at least four <laughs> at least <laughs> All right, so Matt has to go. He has to go pick up his child, so that is okay. We will continue, Killaby and I. Everyone say, guys, thanks everyone for uh, you know hanging out today and uh, enjoy uh, the more combo centric folks talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, later, fellas. See you, Matt. Have a good one. Uh, We can't forget that we do have a draw step every turn. Of course, our opponent does as well. It's uh, interesting you you wrote that because uh, when I when I started playing Legacy or started no not Legacy but when I started playing Combo, it always felt like one draw is nothing. But actually, one one draw is a lot more than the the average person thinks. I've seen a lot of YouTube uh, uh, videos where people played Combo decks and they conceded after their first jam was also built or something like that and there have been countless times where i threw like three turns through lines are diamond through echo they didn't have counter spell anymore and i won that turn it, it doesn't have to be echo it can be different cards of course it can be a, a saga it can be the one ring stuff like that from where you just steamroll a slower opponent but on the other hand um, most decks that are not combo decks they have like the ponder brainstorm package or stuff like that they will be better at restocking their hands than you are so you have to keep that in mind also and how do we shift or maybe that's a question for you how how do we shift our our play patterns after that uh uh 
that initial jam or the that initial uh, interaction interception of our combo yeah i mean it really depends but it- Let's say we've really fallen behind, right? We go in deep, yeah. uh, we spend four, five, six cards, they only spend two with Force of Will plus a blue card. Um, yeah, generally speaking, you don't want to, especially if, if you have an LED Echo deck or you're running the One Ring, these are cards that can really bring you back into the game from behind. Um, but it is certainly a circumstance in which I'm willing to take higher risks. Generally speaking, if you're behind... High risk, high reward plays are the way to go. Uh, even generally speaking, if it's a bad matchup or being on the draw is bad, whatever it is, I'm looking for you know the the 20% hand that's just gonna actually kill them or you know whatever. Even if it's a low percent, because if if the situation or matchup or being on the draw or whatever it is is so bad that it's literally lower than then I'm going to take that I'm going to take that spot to try to get me ahead or at least uh, get some some damage in play creatures if you play them uh don't wait for you for example Riddlesmith. um a lot of the time I keep them in my hand to combo with it but if both players have like one card in hand I always play them out and just chip some damage in and maybe they go to 8 six and from there it might be possible to to just grape shot them by drawing cards get them with the grapes be aggressive uh and then on the flip side if you find yourself ahead um you haven't killed maybe you're playing a fair deck and you're just ahead or you're playing a combo deck and you didn't kill them but you're now way ahead on board if you have a one ring going and you're gonna win the next turn um or very likely to it's easy to just say to feel good about it and go ah we got this in the bag which is a classic way to lose your match to something that you otherwise could have beaten or played around you don't want to finish it cool (laughs) (laughs) let's do it the cool way i mean you don't want to sit there you know and time out on moto thinking of all the things that don't exist that you could possibly you know lose to and start looking up cards on scryfall or (laughs) something like that but you do want to spend you know some amount of thought thinking well how do i lose this this is kind of where it's important to have a lot of reps against a lot of decks because you've already been there you know the ways in which you can lose and usually you can answer this question pretty quickly and then in the event that it is free to play around whatever you could possibly lose to uh, you can do it and you can do it in a timely manner but you just want to be thinking, how do I block their outs? First off, do they have any outs? Maybe they don't. Maybe you can't think of any outs, and okay, you just take game actions and, and try and win the game. Um, but usually, you can concoct some sort of feasible scenario in which they might be able to wiggle their way out. And often enough, in those circumstances, there are ways in which we can play to just simply block those outs. You know, it doesn't matter if they're Delver that doesn't play Mindbreak Trap. If you can play around Mindbreak Trap, why not? If it's free to do so, then just do it. Especially if you're playing on Moto, folks. Crazy things happen in Moto Leagues, all right? There's a lot of degenerates like Killaby and myself out there just slamming people with fast combo decks. And there's also a lot of people who are tired of it. <laughs> so you might see stuff like that. But- also um keep 
uh, or, or think about how far am I ahead. A uh, good example is Echo of Eons, um, because as I said, a lot of decks can uh, restock their hands better than you probably can with your combo deck. Um, so you, you have to make the, the judgment call. I am so far ahead that I will. I, I don't uh, have to take the risk of, for example, uh, make cast Echo of Eons, um, or I'm not far ahead enough. I need to echo and take the advantage I've, I have on board or refresh the game and then uh, maybe win on the spot. And I actually lost a lot of games by echoing, giving my opponent seven cards, uh, whiffing, and then uh, going from a good spot to a terrible spot with just one, one misplay. For sure. So generally speaking, the opposite is true when you're ahead. You want to take fewer risks and you want to play safe to maintain your lead. At the same time, you don't want to needlessly draw out the game. And I certainly want to reiterate, these are the things that become easier to figure out, quicker to figure out, and more accurately figured out the more reps we have. These are things that are very easy to make mistakes and incorrect decisions on. And in the event that over time we continue to reflect in an accurate way, then we are able to improve over time. In the event that we cannot reflect accurately, in the event that we are making decisions based on previous results, the results-oriented thinking, oh, this didn't work last time, therefore I shouldn't do it this time, which obviously not necessarily being true, uh, the more often we're going to continue to make mistakes, maybe different mistakes because we keep changing our play plays in a nonsensical way, it's important to both get the reps in and make sure that we are practicing in a way that is improving our play over time. So once you're getting the reps in, um, you will figure out a couple of things. The point in game where you ideally want to jam your combo and to minimize, minimize whiffs, you will find the point in game where you realistically can jam your combo, uh, also through interruptions and stuff. And you will get down your strategies to follow after the jam failed or we fell behind elsewhere by waiting too long or having to wait because of bad draws. And yeah, if you just trust in this process... Uh, trust in the process, guys. Trust in the process. I promise over time, you'll get better and better. And if you're not, I would recommend uh, getting some coaching from a trusted player of whatever deck uh, you're trying to play. Because if you're consistently not getting positive results, there's something. There's a lot of variance in the game of Magic, but over time you can start to see patterns and numbers that you can make accurate evaluations. And uh, you're struggling, get out there and, and talk to the people who can help you. Sometimes it really just takes playing and having someone there with you while playing to point out what's going wrong. So I, I've taken various coaching lessons myself from various players and i do on a regular basis uh do coaching myself on the other side and i can tell you actually both experiences are very helpful and improve my own uh play so i would highly recommend doing that sort of thing but unless you have something else to oh yeah go ahead i have a question um what do you think uh what percentage of your losses in the past year or your match losses in the past year were due to misplay 
or by by own fault? I'd say I have two answers to that. Because when I'm first playing a deck, the first X amount of months of playing a deck, like Jewel, for instance, and especially when I'm changing the list every now and then, I make a lot more mistakes. I punt a lot more. I lose okay. a lot more matches as a result of doing so. Uh, take a deck like the Epic Gamble. It's going to be a very small percent. I have literal multiple thousands of reps, matches. It's very rare that I'm going to make a an error that costs me a game or match. Um, right now with Jewel, it's probably a good third of the matches, maybe even more, because I'm... I'm testing the waters. There's circumstances in which I'm, and you can see it on my stream and, and hear me say, I'm not sure if this is correct. This is, let, let's see what it feels like, how it, how it goes. Uh, a lot of times with openers, right? Like the thing with Jewel is there's a lot of spells that require other spells for it to function. So uh, a mistake I think I made a few times today was keeping hands that didn't have actual action that didn't have a ring didn't have a jewel but had solid mana against delver and maybe force of will and maybe like a copy effect but realistically the action uh the copy effects only do anything if you have the actual initial action and if you don't have that actual initial action there's a lot lower amount of those so i think i was keeping these hands that felt like they had action they didn't right and they had a low that's, sorry, we are, we are getting to the list shortly, but uh, can you tell me the number of action cards in that deck? Outside of the copy effects? Yeah, just to, to uh, get an idea of uh, why that might be a bad keep. You've got four jewel, four one rings. Uh, if we're talking show and tell as one of the prerequisite spells in her hand, then also Emrakul. Other than that, unless you're counting Seagate Restoration or Odawara, I mean transmute. Ah, uh, and transmute actually, artifact. Uh, yes. Transmute, so. Yes. Well, but there's a, a large number of those prerequisite spells. However, copy artifact, show and tell, Phyrexian metamorph. That's twelve spells that are action if we have something else going already, but aren't in the event that you don't. So you will draw, draw on average two point five five cards before you get your action, and that mm, the variance uh, might hit you. Uh, but but, but I, I'd say it's, I'd say uh, the same uh, about the percentage of games I, I lose uh, for a new brew or stuff like. It, for me, it might be even higher, like maybe even forty percent uh, or a number I don't even know yet because I don't know the the decks uh, well enough yep. to judge whether it was my fault or not. Um, on a deck that I really binge played in leagues and stuff it's i'd still say like 10 percent at least and i mean also you have to uh, uh for for leagues it's a lot different than for really competitive play because i don't f6 my turn in a showcase or something like that but in a league easily so let's move on we're gonna move on to the quick tip so i wanted to talk about the auto tapper in moto and i do apologize in the event that you don't actually play on magic the gathering online but i would recommend that if you don't and you're looking to get better that you do play um and in the event that you do which i'm sure generally speaking is a bit more likely uh and it may not seem to 
obviously helpful, but it really is, especially with uh, a deck like we're going to be talking about today, where you're doing a lot of tapping of mana rocks and you're under the gun to execute your combo uh, quickly and smoothly because you have a lot of game actions to take. So there is in Magic Online a, it's called the auto tapper. So you hold down on the W key. Now you can change this, of course, in the settings. You can make it whatever you want, but by default, it is the W key. So if you hold on W and click on something that produces mana, it will first off, if it's a rainbow mana source, it will default to white. White is the first mana source. If you hit, if you hold on W and click on a um, lotus petal or a mox diamond or a mox opal, you don't have to click and then click the color. Instead, it will just produce the mana as long as the WT is down as soon as you click on the card. If it is, say, a dual land, it will, it depends on what version of the dual land, right? The, like the Modo reprints of Underground Sea, the color on the card you'll notice is split. It like goes diagonally across the card or whatever, and half of the card is one color, and half of the card is the other color. It goes from left to right. So whatever color is on the left, it will produce that color on a dual land. If you have the OG art, you don't get that luxury. However, you start to learn which ones produce what in the, on the dual lands, or at least you should, because it does cut down on time, and that can wind up being very important. Um, I would recommend just simply playing with it if you don't use it. Go use so it. If you if you want to min max on uh, on Modo, you get the dual land that has the most color in your deck. Yep. So for instance, with Jewel, when we're tapping a bunch of jewels, I initially make a bunch of blue mana, but then as I start, you know, in spots where I have an engine in play and every spell that I cast actually nets mana, even if it's Emrakul, I start to worry less about blue mana and i'll use the auto tapper because you can go click 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 right across the screen and it's that few that many fewer clicks and you can actually execute your combo in a timely manner it's actually a great tip i'm not using so far and i will do yeah it's it's very helpful and there's some little like you know caveats as to how this or that works within the auto tapper but uh, i would recommend just getting getting familiar with that um kind of in the same category to cast spells quicker if you produce because there's two ways to cast spells on moto right you either click on the spell in your hand and then it asks you to produce the mana appropriate the appropriate amount of mana or you produce the mana first and then you click on the spell now, if you're playing something like Thoughtcast or Thought Monitor or whatever, and you want to do the trick where you want to announce your spell uh, before you use your Lotus Petal so that you can take advantage of the affinity that it provides, you want to click on the spell first. That's the same thing as announcing the spell before tapping for mana. You can then use your Lotus Petal as part of the cost that it's asking you for while still making use of that affinity. But it also comes up if you just want to cast things quicker. I see this oftentimes even from some of the most popular streamers, YouTubers, uh, whatever it is, where they will announce the spell and then it'll be like a six drop and they'll click on the spell then click on, say you have a six drop, right? You click on the spell and then you click on your three soul lands or your five lands, whatever it is, that mana will come up on the screen on the left and then you then have to click through the mana on the left 
or if you produce a mana that isn't the exact amount of what you're casting. Let's say you produce seven mana and some of it's red, some of it's blue, whatever. You go to cast the six drop. Moto is not going to automatically cast the spell as soon as you click on it because it doesn't know what color you want to use. So you've now provided, you've now caused yourself to click a lot more because now you got to click through six or seven times, not just six or seven times, but also it has to, you know, be input into Moto as you're clicking it. So it has a little bit of lag to it as well. Whereas if you make exactly six mana and you cast a six drop, it will just use the six mana that is in your pool immediately. So I do this with, um, it's very, it's a common occurrence with, say you have a two drop with Ancient Tomb, right? This is probably where I see it quite often. Tap the Ancient Tomb, then cast your two drop. It'll cast it as soon as you click it. If you click on your Grim Monolith, then tap your Ancient Tomb, the mana goes on the left, and then you gotta click it on the left. It's just an extra like five or six seconds on every single spell that you're, or many spells that you're casting. The time adds up, so it can certainly be important. What if I told you I've lost games because I was too lazy to click like six times and then use the wrong mana? Like I, I have a white mana source up and I have a spell that costs six and there's blue mana in my pool and I need blue mana afterwards. But I'm like, yeah, whatever. And I click the spell, <laughs> blue mana gun. And then, yeah. I would believe game. you. If you told me that, I would believe you. <laughs> I've, I've certainly been yeah. there. Happened more than once. <laughs> it's that moto life it's not something that would ever happen in person but <laughs> yeah so that's that's the quick tip if none of that is familiar with you i highly recommend you go on moto and you just play around with it because it's an important skill it'll help you not time out as often not even just timing out but being ahead on clock from your opponent to put pressure on them can be relevant as well um, okay, so we're going to move on to the rant, the rant of the month. So this one is coming straight from Killaby here. What do you got for us? What really grinds your gears? Yeah, it actually ruined my, my whole uh, MTG uh, January uh, because I built a deck with uh, PS Revelation. Uh, quickly, the, what the card does is uh, whenever an artifact is placed in the graveyard from play, your opponent has to either return it to your hand or let it return to your hand or pay three life. And the way it works on Magic Online right now is he has to pay zero mana to deny you the card. So it has no effect at all. <laughs> and I queued like it, it was um, maybe five, five days past New Year's, New Year's Eve. And yeah, it didn't work. And I checked the internet whether it was a new bug or stuff like that, and it was from 2019. And the way my brain works is if I have an idea like that, I have to get it out of my system. I have to play that deck competitively in some way. I mean, leak is enough for me, but I can't. <laughs> and so it just stalled anything i did on, on moto because i got frustrated as as soon as i logged in i opened my deck list and i saw that ps revelation deck that i want to play can't play and probably i don't know there was a new um a bug report file on the moto forums so if any of our uh listeners of, of, of the audience um wants to help me with that go on the moto forum and go to the backlog thread threads and find the peer peers Re revolution um thread 
and upvote it. If you upvote it, it will get fixed faster. And it was posted like in October 2023, I think. But as I said, the, the bug is online since like five years or something, or even longer, probably. Yeah. A bummer. And then I will post a new list. <laughs> I promise <laughs> if enough people do that and it comes out, uh, especially because it's, it's based around sacking and the new set is coming up with the uh, novelist, the goblin novelist um, card that also uh, generates mana of sacrifice permanence and is pumped by sacrifice permanence. Um, yeah, I will probably build a deck around that and I will post it and it will be great. But I need the card, guys, okay? <laughs> so that's my, I, my... I will say, generally speaking, Daybreak Games has been better uh, with that Definitely. sort of thing. Yeah. So hopefully we get that fixed soon so you can get back in the scene, man. Yeah, this month they had this uh, these crashes of the whole client and stuff, and probably that's why they are delayed uh, in general about bugs. They haven't fixed anything in January, I think. From the forums, of course, only. Mm. And I tried. Uh, I wanted to play uh, what the Thursday Night Magic, so uh, my local legacy event. Yeah. Um, but I chose to play basketball instead because we have a game uh, this weekend, and I hurt my hand, and I uh. can't play tomorrow. <laughs> so it's uh, yeah, my hobbies are not going well for me this <laughs> month. But everything else is fine, though. Yeah, I come back. All right, so moving on to the deck spotlight. So we're going to do Jewel tonight, um, which, of course, I and a small community of others have been working on for, what, a couple months at this point. Um, of course, ever since Mind's Desire was unbanned, I've been dabbling here and there, but mostly for fun for a while and to kind of just dip my toes in the water. But um, more recently... We've ran into some competitive builds that are shaping up uh, to get better and better here. So basically at this point there's two builds, uh, both of which are powerful. I think second of which was show and tell I am probably sold on on a more permanent basis. But one style runs Urza Saga and Scaries, uh, Sappers and Scary, the tap, the blue tap land that... Uh, Creates two blue mana, but removes a depletion counter when it does so with two total counters, so you get two uses out of it. Uh, and that deck has a total of 20 lands with no show and tell. You can play it with show and tell as well. I did get a 5-0 with it the first time I did that. It felt powerful. It's probably still the better way to play the version with Saga. However, I said it before, and I think it still holds true. Really, any combo deck that has Saga, in the event that it is truly broken, it won't play Saga. Because Saga is actually a worse land. If you're doing things fast and hard enough, you would rather have a different land. Usually not the way it turns out in practice. I don't think this is actually going to break Jewel to the point where Jewel gets banned or something. But having said that, there is something to be said about still not playing Saga and the benefits that come with it. And I think Saga is not necessarily in line with the time frame that this deck wants to move on. The problem you run into, of course, is if the, if you're running 8 soul lands and Saga, you now have 12 colorless lands in a deck that's trying to cast Transmute Artifact. So let's run through at least the list that I have in front of me here, which as a 60 
Uh, we're still trying to figure out the difference in sideboard from this to what we had in the previous iterations, but the the 60 has not changed for me for for quite some time here, and I think it's really solid. So this is a 16 land deck. We have four Ancient Tomb, four City of Traders, three Islands, one Odawara, and four Seagate Restoration. So that is the land base, mana base. We also have three Chromoxen. There is, by the way, a total of 27 blue cards, as opposed to previous iterations having 18, somewhere between 17 and 20. This has 27, so that's a major improvement in that department. In the three Chromoxen, we have four Lotus Petal, two Spell Pierce, four Grimonolith, four Copy Artifact, four Transmute Artifact, and four Phyrexian Metamorph, so 12 Copy Effects. Four show and tell, or one rings, one paradox engine, or force of will, one misdirection, or coveted jewel, and one emrakul. I don't think I have to go through and explain too many of these cards. I suppose I'll explain transmute artifact. It is a wall of text. Not everyone uh, is in tune with this card. I should have mentioned from the start, of course. If you want to look at the list while we're chatting, there is a link. So go right below, and you can. Look at the list while we're talking about this. The Transmute Artifact is like the poor man's Tinker. In many cases, it's better than Tinker. Overall, obviously, not quite as good. This is the way it works. It's too blue, it's a sorcery. You do not have to make any decisions as to the effect of the card until it's resolved. So this is a card that you can put on the stack. I would recommend maybe playing it upside down on your opponent's playmat because they're going to have to read it. <laughs> but... It's not like Tinker where you're sacrificing something as part of the cost. You just play it. You do, however, in the event that your mana rock, say Grim Monolith, is the artifact that you're sacrificing, you want to tap it. Because as soon as the spell resolves, you're not going to have an opportunity to tap it. It's a different story if you have two Grim Monoliths and you're sacrificing one that's already tapped and you're using the other to pay for it. But if you're trying to pay for us from the effect of Transmute Artifact of which I'm going to explain now, with the Grim Monolith that you're sacrificing, it's not going to work. <laughs> so you put the spell on the stack. In the event that it resolves, you now choose an artifact to sacrifice, at which point you can grab any artifact from your deck if that artifact is the same mana cost or less as the artifact that you sacrificed, that artifact goes into play. In the event that it costs more, you can pay the difference in cost and then it goes into play. Otherwise, it does go directly into your graveyard. It is important to note that Transmute Artifact is a blue and tomb for artifacts. You can choose to not. It, it would have to be an artifact that's larger than what you're sacrificing. However, if you're deliberately entombing an artifact, it's probably going to be something big. It's not something that we take advantage of here, but maybe in the future. So the basic idea is that if you get a jewel into play when you cast transmute artifact you can use two of the blue from the jewel and sacrifice a jewel and you can get another jewel so in that way it is better than tinker because it only costs you two and you wind up going up a mana also tinker is restricted in vintage illegal <laughs> legacy of course <laughs> which makes it worse for us there are various other uses for Transmute Artifact, of course. If you're in a slower scenario, you can go get the One Ring that will accum you know, accumulate card draw over the course of turns. You do not get the cast trigger from the One Ring because you are not casting it. You can. The general play pattern is you Jewel, you get 
another or two more mana rocks into play, whether it be more jewels or grim monolith, then once you hit a transmute artifact at that point, you can sacrifice one of your mana rocks to get paradox engine, and as long as you can then cast another spell, you untap your mana rocks and you go off. You put a one ring into play, you draw your deck pretty easily from there. The deck is composed in such a way that even in the event that you have no mana floating, no land drop available, you are still reasonably chanced to win on the spot. Now, the more mana you have floating, the more copy effects you already have in your hand, land drop available, you know, the more resources you have to go off, the closer that becomes to being deterministic. It is very consistent with winning upon resolution of coveted jewel is it resolution or is it getting it into play i mean just the effect that you get if you resolve a okay. jewel yeah. you, you probably yeah. win on the spot even with a bow masters in play you really don't need too much life total to work with to be able to put together that scenario where you have a couple mana rocks as long as you got i don't know nine or ten life so that you can um withstand uh a few bolts worth of bowmaster's damage from playing a couple coveted jewels because then you can either metamorph copy it kill it or you can resolve a one ring and then you have protection you just don't care um the latest of course difference with this deck is removing scary removing saga ultimately going down four lands and effectively replacing Sagas and Scaries with Seagates and Chrome Moxen. This is particularly effective because we have added Show and Tell. So Show and Tell is effectively a, it's almost like a ritual, uh, plus three, if you will, to cast Coveted Jewel. One of the biggest issues or challenges, obstacles, whatever you want to call it, was bridging the gap between from zero to four for the one ring or up to six for jewel all the things in between resolving the one ring and coveted jewel it was somewhat lacking however yeah. of course grim monolith is something you can do in between but show and tell now is an immediate large piece of action that costs only three that can put a jewel right into play it also makes emrakul not as bad of a draw Oftentimes, it's actually a good draw. We can just show and tell an Emrakul in. Um, and it improves probably one of the tougher matchups, which are tempo matchups, because they don't typically have problematic cards that they're putting in off a of show and tell. Not always the case, generally speaking. So it's done a few things for us. It's improved or increased power level through show and tell. It has lowered the curve. It has added consistency and speed all while being able to run basic islands and of course chromoxin are mana sources that cannot be wastelanded and we we spoke about it before uh the potential for jamming right show and tell is a threat the opponent has to respect uh probably has to force of will and then you can follow up next turn with one ring for example yeah you don't um, have to have a jewel because they have to respect it. If they got a yeah, force, yeah. they're forcing that show and tell whether you have a jewel in your hand or not, most likely. Even if they don't force it, you know they don't have force, right? Or you, I, I mean, that that would be an incredible play uh, to not force show and tell and you have nothing, nothing in your hand. <laughs> you somehow um, just have the read, the soul read. Yeah, and, and they, they put in like 
I don't know, they're, they're Merktide, um, <laughs> but it's just a 3-3, so... Well, they, they put a Merktide, next turn play their, their own Merktide and have two 8-8s. <laughs> but, the boss however, play. Um, uh, I, I want to start before, before we are going to the sideboard, which has some spicy cards, I'd say. Um, I'd quickly go over the Ursa Saga removal, which I think... Uh, is great here, and I um, almost completely agree with you about the uh, you don't have to add Saga if your combo is powerful enough. Um, I put Saga in almost every deck I create when, or every artifact deck I create when I start brewing. Sometimes remove it, sometimes don't. And overall I'd say the, uh, the amount of Zero mana artifacts is really important, and you need at least like at least twelve to sixteen because you need your constructs to win uh, win you the game like one or two turns after the second one comes into play. That that's your goal for Saga. Or that's your if if your plan B with Saga cannot support these big constructs like uh, five five six six seven seven. Um, I think Saga is bad, and the the other aspect is uh, it's a lot better if you have good tools to tutor for. Like Lionside Diamond, of course, is the the most important, but also the uh, Spellbomb and stuff like that. I think you could fit Spellbomb in here, in here, but obviously you don't need too much else. And every every artifact you're adding means less blue count probably, and. Uh, yeah, this looks like it's really comfortable uh, with Force of Will, right? Yes. I mean, you you even added the misdirection, so... Yeah, uh, it helps to not have just Force of Will, right? Misdirection is, unlike Force Negation, uh, the same thing as Force of Will in the event that you're trying to protect yourself from opposing Force of Wills. So if your opponent forces a, a spell and you have misdirection plus a blue card, you can misdirect their force of will to target your misdirection. I think it's a common misconception to have it target itself. You can't have their force target their own force, but you can have it target your misdirection, and then it just counters your misdirection, yeah. and then it doesn't counter your spell. So it feels as though you have five force of wills to protect your combo. Should, should that number be higher? Maybe. Uh, I've chosen to run some spell pierce right now. It's a little more universal and useful, um, but same idea, just more protection. Uh, now that we've lowered our curve with show and tell, we often have the mana to leverage spell pierce even on our combo turn. Whereas if we're trying to spend six mana for a jewel, not always feasible to get the seventh with spell pierce, especially when you're dealing with opposing dazes, wastelands, etc., and so forth. And that being one of the major reasons why I'm not in love with Saga right now, there is, I think, more Saga than there ever has been, and I don't see that trend decreasing. Maybe there's a point where people come to the same conclusion as me and start dialing it back, but most decks that play it can't really afford to take it out. And But what I've noticed is, I mean, there's always a lot of Wasteland, but there's a lot of wasteland right now i know you said you haven't been playing much as a result of uh the issues that you were you were having but maybe it's for the better because there is just an ungodly amount of urza saga right now and there's a lot of null rod 
like a lot. I mean, I don't mind Urza Saga or playing against it. Um, but Wasteland, actually, actually, yeah, Wasteland. It's oh. and even even uh, decks like like Rhinos now play yep. Wasteland. Rhinos is playing Wasteland where they never used to in the past. Um, one of the as the dust has settled with these various beans decks, uh, Bug Beans is probably one of the more popular ones that is most often leveraging wasteland uh whereas for a while there were a lot of those players were playing more four or five color and not playing wasteland uh i've even been getting hit by wasteland out of cradle control we'll have to have uh newton talk about that i a while back i talked to him on twitter saying like hey why don't you guys play a wasteland and basically his answer was there's just not really room for it Having said that, it is a powerful card. It's a reasonable card to put into Cradle Control, and I have been getting hit by it, whether it's a one of, you know, two of, four of, I don't know. Um, but just yet another example of seeing Wasteland where we otherwise don't. And here's another one all these like mid range reanimator decks that are all of a sudden popping up the, yeah. Yeah. you know, quote, scaminator decks. They're basically reanimator decks that don't have quite as much devotion to that but certainly have the package and the ability to make a grizzle brand but also just play a bunch of bowmasters and you know fair stuff like that but they're also running wasteland and there's probably more than i am not even thinking of right now it's just like everybody's running wasteland ah why not yeah i mean the 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 only deck not playing wasteland is probably goblins or um, in any turbo red stuff playing the, the sticker goblin but you don't want to run into these maybe with this deck should do fairly well against them right you have your wandering protection you have goblins uh force of yeah yeah it's one of our best matchups yeah yeah the very least you Looks can like ring lock them a bunch i i don't even think they play the uh the black goblin anymore the one that drains life and can win around the one ring no, it's just just be down now. Yep, I think it's a very powerful deck, but yeah, it's not the greatest against us. Um, yeah. So we'll move yeah, on to you're also also really before we go to the sure. but you're really resistant to uh, Chalice of the Void, yes. which is also great for a for a combo deck overall, and especially some that is artifact based. Yep. I think I, I, a lot of uh, people that don't know the deck will not side out Chalice. Or what I've seen a small handful of players figure out, they leave it in, they put it on two when they can. But even that, I mean, that, that blocks out 12 cards, which it is blocks... bad, but only once they, they gathered four mana. So it's, it's, it's come up a handful of times, and it's yeah. been one of the only reasons that I've lost a, a small handful of games. It makes it really risky to play a jewel because eight of your copy effects can't be cast and ultimately transmute is the thing that usually finds paradox engine that so becomes a, a lot more difficult i, I mean that that's a a, a, a nice uh, case uh, where i'd say the it's still a bad play to keep chalice in even if it might hit your two drops and win you the game because you still have forces, you have still have spell peers, and you it's, still can win, even if it's deployed. Uh, it's, it's one of the only resolved. ways they can win, though. Their their matchup is so bad. 
I think that's literally one of the only ways that I've lost against them. So uh, in my experience and how the matchups matches have played out and the games have played out, it's almost unlosable. And that's one of the only ways that they can steal a game. I would actually play it if I was on the other side. But I understand what yeah okay. what you're saying, that's and it reasonable. It makes sense. But yeah, if you play it enough, it's like the only way they can steal one. Um. So sideboard, we have one chain of vapor, four force of negation, two dismember, four lodestone golem, one the might stone and weak stone. And three, this is a new one today that Bob Wong had uh, suggested, and we're just testing it. It actually played out quite well today, but we're going to continue to test it. Culling Scales. So Culling Scales, I'm sure you don't know what it does. That's three mana, artifact. At the beginning of your upkeep, destroy target non-land permanent with the lowest mana value. So it's kind of like Drop drop of Honey, except for non-land permanence. And we don't have really all that much that's below two so and when i bring this card in i take chromoxin out and that really only leaves petal as like fodder that we might wind up having to hit with culling scales and you can always just sacrifice your petal if you really need to hit something on the other side of the table or you can just hold it in your hand as a normal ritual uh mostly the card is for tempo so it kills a lot of their threats and of course it eliminates null rod um electroof basically most hate that we care about is going to be within range of this card and the matchups in which we want to bring it in it's reasonable to cut chrome mocks typically with previous builds this was a worm coil and our plan against tempo is bringing in four lodestone four worm coil taking the combo out but now Thanks to show and tell and the general improved efficacy of the combo, we we're able to just leave the combo in. For a while, I was just simply resubmitting post board, but now we are testing culling scales. Um, before culling scales, I think I had uh, a smattering of cards. I was playing uh, All is Dust, which is awesome, very good in this deck. I was playing a Ugin the Ineffable. Just can't F that guy. You really can't. He's a six drop that have you played with Ugin ever? Yeah, yeah. Um but yeah, we're testing calling scales now. Hopefully it uh it, it's been it like I said, it performed well today, but I've only played a small handful of matches, so we'll we'll see how it turns out. Generally speaking, this deck just destroys combo. That certainly hasn't changed since the recent changes because now in addition to force of will we have misdirection the two spell pierce all of which in the main deck in addition to our four force negation coming out of the sideboard and of course as well for lodestone golem so we have combo covered that is for sure and then we just have some basic removal chain of vapor which is just a really good card in this deck actually this card really uh overperforms basically any time i've ever drawn it the tricks that you can do with your own stuff with Chain of Vapor is insane. You can bounce all your copy effects and redeploy them to copy your jewel. And of course, Dismember, a great way to kill Collector Roof and other pesky creatures. And the Might Stone and Weak Stone, which is just a very flexible card. So uh, the, the thing with uh, Chain of Vapor is it's almost so good that you're considering playing it main. That's... 
when whenever I play Chain of Vapor uh, in, in the board and bring it in, and then there's this turn where I bounce like four artifacts of um, for myself and uh, replay them. I mean, obviously, one ring jewel, one of those all targets, all the metamorphs as well. Um, but it's it's odd that it's not a main deck card. You you cannot play it main. Like in, I actually with these jewel. Like with these jewel builds, I have actually been playing. I'm not right now, but there are points where uh, if I really don't want to play Odawara, it's a way to have a another blue card, still have a way to bounce something instead of being just 100% cold to permanence. Um, in the previous iteration, really just wanted to run like all lands that produce two mana. Previous iteration was even playing Peat Bog just to increase the density yeah, of ancient tombs <laughs> um so but i hear you sometimes it doesn't it, it's just very good with these cards it's specifically very good with copy artifact metamorph being able to bounce your own jewel can you know comes up and is relevant it's like a blue right of flame sometimes but our blue count with this deck is fine and ottawa is fine so it's in the side for now so another thing about uh, culling scales, scales, it's also good against uh, initiative, right? It beats Arkham, it beats uh, Chalice, Nalrod, and that's like their whole package against you. Yep, it can be a little tricky against Archon because we do have Grim Monolith, but yes, it does, uh, it does a lot of work for sure. Uh, I do want to detail the Emrakul, the why, the how, um, and then we'll try and wrap it up kind of soon. I want to hit FNM tonight. Probably okay. have about 10 minutes or so left here. But So Emrakul, this is the win con of choice. Now, if you've followed back from PO to now, you know I've played with a number of different win cons, whether it be Thassa's Oracle, Walking Ballista, Reservoir, Aetherflux Reservoir, Jace. So that process... Initially, Thassa's Oracle, we were playing it, and it, it wasn't actually optimal, right? You want to be able to beat the One Ring, which is the first goal, right? We could never really play Emrakul and PO because we were playing Emery, and the lack of synergy is just too much there. Um, plus, technically, you don't kill them, especially if you're only taking one turn attacking and then actually passing the turn. So we started playing Walking Ballista instead of Thassa's Oracle because it still got around the One Ring, it killed Bowmasters. You could play it with Emery. It was good. And I, I mean, with uh, Emrakul, you can also go infinite turns with. Uh, yes, that's uh, that's the big difference. It forever in, or shoveling it back into your deck, uh, the the dying one, then drawing it because you probably have uh, like a huge board that uh, or paradox engine that can draw you a lot of cards, and you can. Uh, replace your one ring so you don't take damage and yada 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 so right yeah it, and it's it's a lot of fun it, it's the most fun win condition of all these cards maybe reservoir is up there but yeah <laughs> Nothing yeah it's cast emrakul right right infinitely <laughs> looping <Yeah>. emrakul <laughs> cast yeah i i mean technically it is, uh, I'll put it in real hard quotes here, beatable, right? If they play a one ring, 
technically, you can't kill them. But these are the things that you can do. First off, you can cast Seagate Restoration so that you don't have a max hand size. You don't have to worry about that whole dance. You have infinite emeralds, so you're going to wipe their whole board. You're going to reset your ring, like you said. So now you're going to get your turn with zero permanence. Your opponent's going to have an active ring trigger, as well as literally their whole deck in their hand, including a grip full of Force of Wills. So you need to have <laughs> a win that comprises of only cards in your hand that also beats the ring and beats however many... Beats of Wills, <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, Good luck. and two spell peers. Um, yeah, so... Good luck. You win that one. Actually, I, I think I'm, I'm going to play this next week. It's now that we've gone over it, and yeah, you, you got me into it. I, I will I will try it out. Actually, um, maybe a, a small uh, spoiler. I want to start streaming a little bit. Ooh. Maybe on Fridays. Maybe I'll try this one first. But let's see. <laughs> I have to <laughs> set up and stuff and really bad with that. So we'll see whether it works. I think people would dig that, man, for sure. Yeah, especially me, me failing a deck that I haven't played before. But I've, I've played uh, similar, so it should be fine. Yeah, you'll make it work. But yeah, that's, uh, that's the deck. It's been really powerful. I can't guarantee this will be <clears throat> the absolute final list, but we've been working on it for a while, and I'm pretty confident with the 60, and we're just playing with a few things in the sideboard. So stay tuned. I... I'll be playing in the, the challenge with this on Sunday. I'll be streaming. I mean, that will occur before this episode drops, but <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Um, I predict that? you go 5-2 uh, into top 8. 8 plays. I'll take and then it. you lose. I'll take <laughs> it. I, I love losing in the first round of the top 8. It's, it's my MO. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mal, mal to, to four, mal three. <laughs> hey man, all I need is Ancient Tomb, Monolith, Jewel. Take my draw, stra draw step, any mana source. No worries, I'm in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good luck to you on, on Sunday. Thank you, thank you. So I think that about wraps it up. If you enjoyed this content and you need more, of course, go check out the other episodes and scroll below the episode. You'll see all sorts of links to all of our uh, Twitches, Patreons, YouTube, all that good stuff. So check it all out. But otherwise, keep, uh, keep jamming. Keep getting better. Play on Moto. You don't have a Moto account. Go get one. <laughs> <laughs> Play some more. Yeah, get it picked. Bye-bye, <laughs> <laughs> everyone. Bye-bye. This the bruise of paradise. Come a connoisseur is gonna share advice. Will they sleeve it up? Shuffle at the pub. Gonna spice it up. Grape shots are doubled. Tony Caponi perceives the mirror. Sees the future. Always crystal clear. Yeah. Punishing waterfalls. Little toys are again. Powerful Jedi on my knee rocking. Riddle me this. Who's a killer bee? Fiddling with broken legacy. Finding outcomes that are so paradoxic. Those LEDs were lined with toxins. So many rubies. You think it's Tuesday? Bruise on tap. That's a draft. Can you say reforce the soul? That's busted. Pack it up. Savage. Look. That's so disgusting. Brother's busy. Vision hazy. Thank you for the follow. These bristles. 
business. For the Republic, we combo off. Land so meaty, beef stroking off. Flashback like echoes, sip for seco, bit of bubbly burning. Wish for tendrils, dark and stormy always gets me horny for a goblin orgy that's empty for us. The cruise of paradise, you're the proudest tour, gonna do it live.